Please open the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is it's a grave responsibility to come before our God, our Creator, our King, when we gather together to offer up to Him our praises, our prayers, and to sit underneath His Word. And this passage that we're going to read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, like so much of 1 Corinthians, addresses the character and responsibilities of the church. When Pastor Drew invited me several months ago to preach, I decided on this passage. I didn't know that he was planning a series of messages on the church. He didn't know that this was going to be my text today. I trust that this is one of those providential coincidences. And 1 Corinthians holds a special interest to me personally as well as director of the B.H. Carroll Center for Baptist Heritage and Mission at Southwestern Seminary. And as a professor of church history there, I have made an extensive study of Baptists throughout the centuries and am deeply aware that it was Baptist interpretation of 1 Corinthians in many respects that shaped their ecclesiology and they thought and preached and wrote a lot about the church. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 beginning at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but you have revealed to us your truth, your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would open your word to us and that you would humble us and open us to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on Paul's second missionary journey, Paul went to Corinth, to Achaia, the southern part of Greece. And he spent 18 months there. The Lord blessed his ministry with many conversions. And he, he preached and taught and served and labored among them for 18 months. Think of that. What a joy. What a privilege. He trained and sent other teachers to them. Titus, Timothy, Apollos. He kept in close contact with them by correspondence and through, through brothers who went back and forth. Yet despite all this, the Corinthian church was a hothouse of error and sin, which teaches us, if nothing else, that there is no perfect church. There never will be a perfect church, even under such apostolic care and concern and stewardship, error and sin emerge so extraordinarily. And in this letter, and especially in this chapter, Paul showed that Christ commanded his churches to oppose error and sin with humility, with love, and with courage. Verse 1, Paul says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The Greek word here is porneia, uh, from which we get pornography and the like. It refers to sexual immorality of all sorts, and that is the sex which is prohibited, sex outside of marriage. And he spells out the precise kind of immorality. It is a man, a church member has married his stepmother, a marriage forbidden by the word of God, by the law of Moses, Leviticus 18. Paul doesn't even quote Leviticus, he doesn't even seem to feel any need to prove that this is sinful behavior. He merely refers to the fact that even the pagans recognize that this is wicked and they do not tolerate it. The church knows about this immorality. It's also clear that this is not something secret. It's not as though he's, he's keeping this secret. The church knows about it. Some of them probably confronted him about it but they have agreed to tolerate him as a member in good standing, apparently on the plea discussed in chapter 6, the subsequent chapter, that the law of Moses was fulfilled and therefore Christians were free from the law. This is probably the argument that he used and that others were using to tolerate him despite the fact that they knew that he had this sinful marriage. In verse 2, Paul says, you are arrogant. And I think what Paul means by this, that they were arrogant because they believed that all was well in the church when in fact all was not well. 
They were satisfied with their spirituality. Indeed, they had a very high view of their gifts, their prominence, their spiritual power as a church. They listened to all the right preachers. They went to all the right conferences. They read all the right books. Their church was strong, they felt, a model of faithfulness and spiritual vitality. But the immorality of this one member and the church's toleration of it, Paul says, was a grave injury. It called not for self-satisfied praise, but rather for mourning. Ought you not rather to mourn, he says. The toleration of this immorality was a contradiction and called for repentance and sorrow. At the end of verse 2, Paul gives an instruction regarding what the church ought to do. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul instructs them to remove this man, to expel him. Now, what did this expulsion mean? Paul said in verse 2 that it's the removal of this man from among them. In verse 5, he says it is a delivering of the man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In verse 13, at the end of the chapter, he says that it is a purging of the evil person from among you. But don't, don't be misled here. This is not about a place. The church was not a place. The church would gather in specific places, but as you know well, the church is not a place. This was not about um, getting a, a, a no trespass order against this man. This is about removing him from the fellowship. He would no longer belong to the fellowship of those who followed Jesus, the fellowship of the disciples. He would no longer belong to the church, that is. He would no longer have a seat at the Lord's table in communion. He would no longer be identified as brother. He would no longer belong to Christ's body among the children of light, but he would belong to the realm where Satan rules among the children of darkness. It was not a declaration that the man was not truly saved. Expelling him was not the same as saying that he was eternally condemned It was rather a trust in Christ's remedy presented here for his obdurate sin. If he was truly saved, he would humbly submit to Christ's ordained chastisement and discipline and would repent in order that his spirit might be saved. And by the way, this is what happened. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul mentions this case. And he says in verse Five, that it was time for the church to renew their fellowship with him lest he be overwhelmed by sorrow. The man did repent in great sorrow and grief. Now, <clears throat> whom did Paul command to remove this man, to expel him? He didn't say, I have expelled this man on the basis of my own apostolic authority. He didn't say, let the bishop or the senior pastor remove this man from among you. He didn't say the elders should gather together to expel him. 
He said that they all, when they gather together as a church in the name of the Lord Jesus and in his power, they were to expel him. It was all the members of the church acting jointly. They're the ones that Paul says have this obligation to remove the man. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when, when he talks about what happened, he refers to the expulsion. In 2 Corinthians 2, 5, Paul actually says the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient. The Greek is very straightforward there. No question about what the Greek says. The punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient. They clearly understood Paul to place the obligation upon all of them. They clearly made their will known that they would obey the instruction given them by Christ through the apostle Paul. Did they take a vote? Well, they must have of some sort, whether they raised their hands or they stood and sat or whether they did a roll call. We don't know how they did it, but somehow they made an indication of their will so that Paul can say, the punishment inflicted by the majority. Now, why did Paul say three times he was present with them in spirit? Verse three, for absent in body, I am present in spirit and as if present. I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And then in verse four, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. Why does he say that? Is it some kind of, of clairvoyance or or? No, Paul says this to remind them of his relationship to them. Paul was their father in Christ. He's just discussed this in chapter four. It's a special relationship. He labored for their sakes and lived among them for 18 months. He loved them and he was an apostle. He had teaching authority. Christ himself had commissioned him to preach the gospel to teach God's revealed truth and to establish in order Christ's churches. So Paul had both a moral authority by virtue of being his father of them in Christ, father in the faith, and by virtue of the fact that he had been their pastor for 18 months, but he also has apostolic authority, and I believe that he's appealing to both of them when he says that he was present with them in spirit. He's calling them to remember his relationship and his standing with the church there at Corinth. He's saying, how would you respond if I were present physically? How would you receive my instruction? And that is how they should respond even when he is absent. In a similar but superior way, he refers to the authority of Jesus here. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. Twice he has reference there to the authority of Jesus Christ. Their action, Paul is saying here, was not a matter of human counsel. It was not a matter of practical expedience. It was not done by the authority and wisdom of men. It was done by the authority of Jesus, the head of the church. There are some things that the church at Corinth did and that, that all churches do that are matters of human wisdom and practical expedience to accomplish specific purposes. But this was not one of those things. 
expelling a member from the fellowship. It's a matter done by the church acting officially by the command and authority of Christ himself. Why is it that Paul makes such a big point of this? Three times mentioning his own presence spiritually, referring to his own authority and relationship, and twice referring to the authority of the Lord Jesus. Why this emphatic appeal to authority? No doubt it is because the Corinthian Christians were disinclined to do what he taught them to do. Perhaps the Corinthian Christians said something like this, can't we just keep affirming our love for him? Can't we just keep identifying with him while at the same time encouraging him to repent? And if we do have to expel him, can't we do it quietly without the shame and embarrassment that will accompany a public decision of the whole church assembled together? Surely they viewed such an expulsion the same way people have always viewed it as unkind, unloving, uncharitable, hypocritical, and barbaric. Unkind because it would involve so much pain and shame, not only to him, but to his family, to his wife, who apparently was not yet a believer. We don't have an explicit reference, but based on the fact that she is not mentioned for this, suggests that she's not a member of the fellowship. They're still trying to win her. Unkind because it involves so much pain and shame to him and to all who were associated with him. It, was unlo- it would be unloving, they no doubt thought, because they wanted to win him to repentance. And you cannot do that by rejecting him and tossing him to the curb. They no doubt thought it was uncharitable because there seemed to be no recognition of human weakness in this action. No patience in seeking to persuade him to repent. It seemed to be hypocritical because every church member was also a sinner. And didn't Jesus say, let him who was without sin be the first to throw a stone? And surely they thought it was barbaric because even the uncultured barbarians treat one another better than this. Surely they thought, as we generally do, that expulsion was destructive of everything the church was trying to accomplish. It seemed designed to make the sinning member angry and alienated from the church rather than softening his heart. It would surely harden it instead. It would secure the ill will of outsiders. It would confirm their belief that Christians were all hypocrites. It would give them one more excuse to reject the gospel. Because look at how Christians treat each other. And it would be divisive. It would sow resentment among the members who were close to him and who sympathized with them. In summary, to expel such a one they no doubt thought and to do it in this way was contrary to all human wisdom and all sound reason. So Paul emphasized the one argument that alone could perhaps overcome such a raft of arguments against it. You must, Paul said, expel him because Jesus commanded it. Paul, by his apostolic authority, acting under the command and commission of Jesus, told them that Christ required it. He told them they were to expel him by the authority of Christ himself. This argument alone would give them the courage necessary 
to take this awful action. In verses 6 through 8, Paul explains why it's not actually hypocrisy to do this. Your boasting's no good, he said. Verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It was not hypocrisy to expel the man. Rather, Paul is explaining here, it is hypocrisy to keep him in fellowship. First, because to do so would contradict the gospel. Because Christ's sacrifice accomplished not only the forgiveness of our sins, but it secured also our repentance from sin, our submission to Christ's judgment against all sin. And it secured a new heart and a new nature in all who were forgiven of their sins through faith in Christ. We who have trusted in Christ have been born again. We have a new nature, hearts inclined to Christ and to his will. And Christ's sacrifice also secured the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer. Everyone whose sins have been forgiven for power against temptation and for humility, for repentance. And so to tolerate such sins as this man committed was effectively to deny that the gospel had power to transform sinners, to renew them. It was to deny the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a contradiction, therefore, of the very gospel itself. But second, it was hypocrisy to tolerate this man in the fellowship because tolerating his sin would nurture the sins of the flesh within the fellowship. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It will work like leaven to spread sin, malice, and evil in the church. And toleration of such sins necessarily works toward, therefore, the destruction of the church. Verse 9, Paul makes it clear that this is not an ad hoc instruction. This is not a one and done issue. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter, talking about a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And by the way, that letter, as far as we know, does not survive. It was not the will of the Holy Spirit to put it in the canon. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother a Christian, a church member, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil man from among you. By the way, if you're looking for a text that explicitly teaches church membership, this is it. I had a friend who once told me that he didn't join the church because church membership isn't in the Bible. And, and I was so surprised to hear that. I didn't know what to say, but I'd never really thought about it before. And at that moment, I couldn't think of any verse. Well, if you need a verse, this is it. 
There's an inside of the church and there's an outside of the church. Those that are inside the church have a special title, brother, sister. Everyone else is outside the church. They don't have that title and they don't have that belonging. They don't have that duty. They don't have that identity. All of that clearly presented just in these few verses 9 to 13. They clearly knew who was inside, who was called brother and sister. Else they couldn't have known whom they were or who they were to judge, right? What have I to do with judging those outside? It's not those inside that we are just, they know who's inside. This is not something that's a secret or anonymous. There are no anonymous church members. You don't become a church member by birth. You don't become a church member by some anonymous, unknown act. It takes deliberation on the part of the one joining and on the part of the church join. And they no doubt had a list. Once they got above 10 or 15 members, no doubt, they started writing it down. There's an inside, there's an outside. Call it membership, call it fellowship, call it partnership, call it whatever you want, but Christians traditionally call it church membership. Now, here's the shocking part. Paul commanded the church at Corinth to judge themselves. Is it not those inside whom we are to judge? They're not to judge persons outside the church. They were, however, to judge those inside the church. And, and this judgment is not eternal judgment. This is not, he's not saying that they need to condemn people to hell or, or forgive them for heaven. This is not their prerogative, not the prerogative of the church to do that. The Roman Catholic Church has taught that it was. At least many, and especially in the Middle Ages, taught that. It's Christ's prerogative to judge in this way. However, Paul is saying that they need to recognize that Christ gives them a responsibility to recognize and oppose sin. And more specifically, Paul here charged them to discern and recognize when a member's sin required expulsion. To judge in this way. This is what the judgment is for. You recognize it, you discern it, you exercise discrimination, you apply the word of God to it, and you conclude sometimes that the church must take this, this act. This is what Paul is teaching here to these Christians at Corinth. But perhaps you say, I thought Christians were not supposed to judge. This has been drilled into us. Christians don't judge. We're not to judge. We quote Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. We always revert to the King James there. I don't know why. Certain verses we always quote in the King James. In the ESV, judge not that you be not judged. You know, hypocrisy is the most, hypocrisy is among the most common characteristics of human sin and human behavior. As sinners, we constantly condemn others for the sins that we ourselves commit. We exonerate ourselves and condemn others for the same actions. To take a trivial example, if out on the expressway here, you're driving along and a whole raft of cars, they all pass you, whoosh, 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 left side, right side, all around. Happens all the time to you, right? And when that happens, what do you think? Well, they shouldn't be driving that fast. You condemn them because they're going way too fast. However, on those occasions when you find yourself driving faster than all the other cars, suddenly they need to be chastised for going too slow and obstructing the progress of citizens who are obeying the traffic laws, or almost obeying them perhaps. <clears throat> the left lane, fast lane, you know what I'm talking about. 
We all, we tend in our sin to judge by double standard. And even as you hear this example that I'm giving, many of you in your minds are providing rationales and vindications for why you do both of those things. When Jesus said judge not, he directly condemned hypocrisy, judging by a double standard, claiming to be free from the sins that you judge others for. Indeed, this is how Jesus himself explained it. He went on to say that we must first take the log out of our own eye and then we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. He expects us to take the speck out of our brother's eye, but only after we deal with the log in our own eye. In other, way, in other words, we must judge ourselves first. Every time we judge someone else, every time we evaluate them in some way negatively, we need to recognize that as a call of the Holy Spirit to apply the same standard to ourselves. Because there's no doubt that we are guilty, if not in the exact same form in other forms, and usually our guilt is deeper than theirs, if truth be told. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged Jesus in, Jesus in John 7, 24 said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. So Jesus' command, judge not that you be not judged in Matthew 7, 1, is not an absolute exhaustive command to never exercise judgment. It is not to judge with a double standard. It is not to judge as a hypocrite. This means that judging in accordance with what God has revealed is the kind of judging that we are required to do. It means trusting God's judgments of things and acting and speaking in accordance with God's judgments. It means discerning who is guilty. Not as one who's guilty. Did I read that rightly? It means judging as one who is guilty. That is, whenever we offer this analysis, this discrimination, this discernment, this judgment, we are doing it not as one who is guiltless, but as one who is guilty in need of grace. We are to judge in humility and confession, not in the arrogance of self-vindication. And we should point out here that Jesus told his followers in Matthew 18 that when a brother does not repent of sin, the church must treat him as an outsider, as a Gentile and a tax collector. It was a grave responsibility that Christ placed upon his churches here. Now, just to ask a couple of questions in closing. Have you cleansed out the old leaven in your heart? Have you been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by sincerely repenting of your sins and pleading for his mercy to forgive you? If you think that the answer to that question is no, I summon you here and now to enter into the presence of Christ by calling on his name. Cast yourself at his feet, confess your sin to him, and pray for his forgiveness of your sins. Your sin is not so great that he cannot forgive you. His mercy is full and free. His love is an everlasting love. His grace is an overcoming, overwhelming grace. It is all sufficient for you. Seek him now. Confess your sin. Ask him to forgive you. He will not reject you. If the answer to that question is yes, if you have 
called upon his name and been cleansed of your sins, are you a member of the church yet? Christ established his church for his disciples. He clearly expected his disciples to join the church. If you are a disciple but do not belong to a church, you have not yet fulfilled the obligation to belong to God's earthly household, the church, the pillar and bulwark of truth, as Paul calls it in 1 Timothy 3. You know, Christ gave various commands, such as the ones that we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5. Christ gave various commands directly and through the apostles to his churches as churches, and that must be obeyed as churches. And if you don't belong to a church, you have decided effectively that you do not have to obey the commands given to churches as churches. Join the church. If you are a member of Christ's church, will you repent of any resentments, jealousies, and bitterness toward any brother or sister? Christ loves his church. Christ purchased his church with his very blood. If you are a disciple of Christ, if you're going to submit to him, you need to repent of all jealousies, all bitterness, all resentments, all rivalries. Will you honor one another with the love and honor that accords with the title that Christ has given every single one in the church, brother, sister? This is a title that Christ has purchased for everyone who is in the church. Will you honor one another in accordance with that title? Will you accept the responsibility that Christ has placed on every member of the church to obey jointly all those commands he has given to the church as church. It's a grave responsibility that Christ has placed upon his churches. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray, acknowledging that we are sinners in need of grace and mercy each day. We Praise you, Father, that you have not treated us in accordance with our sins, that you looked past our faults and saw our needs and in love reached out and saved us. All who have repented of their sins and called upon Christ for forgiveness, we thank you, Father, and we pray that you would make us as grateful and thankful as we ought to be, that our hearts might overflow with love. And Father, we pray that all of those who have heard these words who do not know the Savior will see their need and will cast themselves upon the grace and mercy that is in Christ Jesus. And Father, we pray that you will be honored and glorified in your churches. We pray that you will be honored and glorified in this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.